You're listening to Redeeming Grace Audio. For more resources or messages, check out redeeminggracecc.com. I'd like to start this morning by telling you a Bible story. A story about two men named Nadab and Abihu. Abihu? Abihu and Seen. Thank you. I like to call that one Abihu's on first. Nadab and Abihu were sons of Aaron, a very important group of people in the life of these early Hebrew people leaving captivity in Egypt. And they decided one day that they wanted to offer sacrifice. And so they go into the altar and they begin to put the censure into the fire. But here's the problem with that. This was not an offering that God had required. This was an unsolicited offering. They were trying to worship in their own way. And this story takes a wild turn because as they're here trying to put the sacrifice into the altar, into the fire, the furnace begins to burn so hot that the flames leap out of the furnace and consume our friends Nadab and Abihu and kill them. And don't ever tell me that Leviticus is boring. Because here we see a very stark reminder that coming into the presence of God is very serious business. And we see multiple stories like this throughout the entirety of the Old Testament where people didn't take seriously the responsibility they had as worshipers of God when they came into the presence of God to worship and the consequences were dire. Now, we live on the other side of the resurrection. When Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice once and for all, and through his death and resurrection, we see that beautiful image of the curtain in the temple being torn from top to bottom. And so now, anyone who puts their faith and their hope in Jesus, we have free access into the presence of God. We can come into the presence of God without fear. Because we know that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We know that God tells us to draw near to him and he will draw near to us. But the thing is, when we have this kind of free access to God, and we don't have that fear of death or consequence coming into God's presence improperly, it can be really easy to stop thinking about the fact that we are approaching The holy, triune, unmatched, immortal, infinite, all-powerful God of the universe. And that we are standing fully in his presence. And so that's where the teacher in Ecclesiastes comes in. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5, in the midst of speaking out against selfishness and decrying wickedness and all the meaninglessness of the world, the teacher here reminds us that stepping in to the presence of God as worshipers of God is very serious business no matter who we are, no matter where we come from, and no matter what side of the resurrection we find ourselves on. And so as we look at these first seven verses in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, I want to look at just a few things that we can do as worshipers of God to make sure that we're approaching the throne of God with the kind of reverence and awe and wonder that it deserves 
as we get to worship him, not just on Sunday mornings, but each and every moment of our lives. And so this is our text this morning, the word of God coming from Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. And he says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Father God, even as I say those words, even as I address you by name, it's so easy to forget what they mean. And so God, before we even start talking about this passage of Scripture and what it means to be able to come freely into your presence, God, I just ask and pray that you forgive us of the times when we take this lightly. And we forget the times that every time we worship you, that we are standing on holy ground. And that the only reason we're worthy to be in your presence at all is because you have made us worthy through Christ Jesus and your power, your effort, and your work, not ours. So Father, help us to recapture the wonder of worship. Help us to learn again how to be in awe of the fact that we get to worship the God of the universe and stand freely and even boldly in the midst of your presence. God, help us to be worshipers as you have called us to be worshipers. Help us to be sure that we are always worshiping you and not something or someone else. And even though we can come freely, God, help us to come rightly into your presence. And we pray all of these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. So when we think about coming into the presence of God for worship, the first thing that the writer of Ecclesiastes tells us that we need to do is to guard our steps. Right there in the beginning of chapter 5, he says, guard your steps when you go into the house of God. And so I want you to just for a moment, close your eyes. I know I ask you to do this a lot. And it's because I like asking you to do this. One, because I think it helps us to focus. Because again, sometimes there can be all of these distractions. And also, just to let you look behind the curtain, I also think it's funny to ask you to close your eyes. Because then I have to keep my eyes open because I'm walking on a stage and I could fall off. And so I see all of you closing your eyes, but then also kind of uncertain about how long you should close your eyes. And it just brings me great joy. So close your eyes because we do have a thought process, but also I want to see you all closing your eyes and find joy in that. But I want you to think about how you got here today. 
all the way to the point of the seat in which you are sitting right now. From the time that you opened your eyes until the time that I just made you close your eyes, I want you to think about the entire process. Now, this may be a really hyper-literal way to think about this, of the idea of guarding your steps and thinking about your steps, but I do think it matters. Because chances are you probably thought when you woke up about the fact that you had to wake up and maybe the fact that you had to turn your alarm off or you hit the snooze button and you woke up a little bit late. Maybe you immediately thought about the fact that you have to wake up your spouse or your children or you have to make sure that your clothes have been pulled the night before and maybe you're thinking about what you were going to wear. And guys, you can open your eyes now. It's, 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 it's getting weird. <laughs> Maybe you thought about the shirt that you were going to wear, the pants you were going to wear. And listen, as someone who wears a black t-shirt and blue jeans 85% of my life, I still thought about this very black t-shirt that I was putting on this morning. I thought about how I had to get out of the house. I thought about what time I needed to get out. I thought about all the things that I needed to have to be able to get here this morning, even though I forgot something very important in the computer charger. I was thinking about how much gas that I have, and maybe you are too, and maybe you were hoping it's not low because, my goodness, filling up the gas tank right now is a very unpleasant experience. Maybe you're thinking about making sure that you had time to either make coffee at the house or get coffee on the way, or you were hoping that somebody was going to bring breakfast or bring coffee this morning, and all of these things were going through your mind as you were getting to this exact point in this exact moment. But I wonder, did you guard your steps? as you came into this place? Did we take time to tune our hearts and focus our minds on the fact that we were coming together this morning to worship Jesus? Because I think as Christians living in the South, we're really good at getting ready for church. But I wonder how good we are at getting ready for worship. Because I think the reality is, is we're often expecting to come to church with the understanding that church is going to be what gets us in the mood for worship. That it's the responsibility of the service or of the worship leader, of the pastor, to prepare our hearts for worship. But we need to have that work done long before we come into the door. And that doesn't mean that we need to have everything together. That doesn't mean that we need to get ourselves into this false sense of I'm just super excited and happy with everything that's going on in my life. But it does mean that we need to take inventory of everything that's happened through the week. The good things and the bad, the triumphs and the tragedies and all the ways that God has shown himself to be present and active in our lives and look at all of those things as an opportunity to pour out our life in praise and worship and to realize the purpose that we are coming together each and every Sunday morning is not to just have our tank filled up so that we can get through the next week, but we are supposed to come with our hands full and ready to worship God together, not waiting on our favorite song to get us in the mood to worship Jesus. Jesus, not waiting for a quote in the sermon or a passage of scripture to really rile up our hearts to be able to finally come into the presence of God and worship him, but we should wake up in the mornings on Sundays ready to come into the house of the Lord and ready to worship God. We should come with an expectation that God is going to move. We need to be praying our steps into the building as we come together, because we're not just coming together because this is what we do on Sundays, but this is an opportunity for the church of God to worship him together. And imagine what would happen if we all took that mentality as we came together to worship. That we were praying for this time long before we walked into this room. 
that we were fixing our hearts towards Christ, realizing that the reason we're coming together is to exalt the name of Jesus, to encourage and lift one another up and to get to celebrate God's goodness and glory and the power of Jesus Christ together. I really truly believe that if each and every one of us took that responsibility seriously to guard our steps and come in to worship together with the anticipation that we were going to see God move and lift God up, then everything would change in our lives individually, in our lives as a church, and in our mission to take the gospel to the world. And so I want to encourage you each and every time that we gather together, not just on Sunday mornings, although that's the best place to start, but anytime we come together as a church to worship God and lift him up, don't wait. Don't wait and hope that there's just going to be a song that moves you in the right way or a moment that connects to something that you've been going through, and then you can be alivened and alerted to be able to worship God, but come into the presence of God, guarding your steps and ready to worship him in spirit and in truth. So we guard our steps. But we also let our words be few. Now I come to you as a man of many words, I come to you from a house of a people of many words. In fact, I would dare say that in my house, words almost never stop to the point where my children just keep talking long after they've gone to sleep. It's an amazing thing to see. And we just talk all the time. And for me especially, because I am a bit introverted and awkward, I use words as this defense mechanism, not just in my relationships with people, but in my relationship with God. I just talk and talk and talk, and talk. But one of the things that I love about Scripture is that even though, I mean, there's a lot of words here, a whole bunch of words in these 66 books, and sometimes God takes his time and fleshes things out and uses chapters on chapters on chapters to be able to teach us these deep and beautiful, meaningful things, and sometimes he just takes a few words and cuts right to the heart. Because I love here in verse 2, it says, Be not rash with your mouth. And that that just feels all like it's directed towards me. Nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. And then this is the small section that I think says so much. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Right in that moment, the writer of Ecclesiastes puts us exactly in our place. God is in heaven, and you are on earth. He is God, and you are not. He is infinite, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, and you are a person who had a beginning. He is the creator of everything that is, and you are just part of that creation. But so often when we come into the presence of God for worship or to experience his grace and mercy, we come with that mentality flipped on its head. And of course, maybe we don't say that exactly and we don't come in with the belief that I think I'm above God. But think about how we often worship and how we often relate to God. We come in talking. We are rash with our words and we are quick to speak and we talk at God and just move our mouths over and over and over again. 
We like to dictate the action in our relationship with God. We like to determine how our worship and how our personal time with Jesus goes. We come to God with our list of demands, and even though we call them requests, if he doesn't answer them in the way that we want them to be answered, we turn real hard. And even when it comes to worship, even when it comes to prayer, even when it comes to singing, even when it comes to things like confession, we want to do all of these things in our own way. Thank goodness the same system is not in place like Nadab and Abihu. Because more often than not, we want to sing the songs that we want to sing. And if they don't move our hearts the right way, or if we don't like the words, or if we don't like the melodies, then we don't feel like we can worship. And we can walk maybe out of our church and into a church with another kind of tradition around worship. And if the practices don't feel right, and if they're not doing the same rhythms and the same actions and the same motions that we're doing, then maybe we find it hard to worship because we like to worship on our own terms. And sure, we can turn and look at, at modern worship music and we can just say, oh my goodness, we write these songs that are just focused around us and look at all this fluffy worship that goes on. But the reality is it's not the content that really shows our heart. Because you can go into the most theologically deep and robust church singing the most robust hymns with all of these words and still find that same heart that you're going to find people that if I'm not singing this song in this way with this mentality, then I can't worship God because ultimately what I'm trying to do here is make myself feel good. And I want to do that through the avenue of worship. I can see this so much in my prayer life where I'll start praying, and then before I know it, what started as a prayer just turns into me talking to myself, planning out my day, figuring out what I'm going to do, trying to solve all of my problems. And here's what's so crazy and dangerous. I don't even know where it happens. I can't see the seams. I can't see the transition. It's so smooth that I start praying to God, and then all of a sudden I'm just talking to myself. It's really scary because <laughs> that's idolatry. I'm praying to myself, and more often than not, I can't even tell the difference. But the writer of Ecclesiastes here is reminding us to remember who God is, to remember who we are, and then to act accordingly. He says, don't forget, God is in heaven and you're on earth. God is infinite and all-powerful, and you have so many limitations. And so why are you trying to exalt yourself? Why are you trying to worship yourself? Why are you trying to figure all of these things out when God is the one who's up here and has the ability to do anything about it, and you don't have anything at all? Think about how God responds to Job. As you get to the end of Job's story, he's finally just had enough. He is so faithful through that entire story, and then he just gets so overwhelmed, and he comes and he just starts talking at God. And the first phrase that God utters in response is, Who is this man that darkens my presence with words without wisdom? And then he starts laying out who he is. And in the same way, we so often just come at God talking and talking and talking and talking, and God is just there saying, shh. And he says it in such a gentle way, doesn't he? He says, be still and know that I am God. But we aren't very good at doing that. A while back, I heard a sermon by Francis Chan, and he was talking about prayer. 
And I know I've mentioned this before, but I think this is such a unique practice. He said, before I pray, I always take a moment and I stop. And it's not always very long. Sometimes it's short. Sometimes it's long. But I take a moment before I start to speak and I just remember to whom I'm speaking. I want to make sure that I know that I am speaking to God and not just throwing my words up at the sky. And I think that's such an important practice because each and every one of us could use a little more silence in our worship. We need those spaces like the prayers of the people time. We need those spaces like the time when we come to the table where nobody is saying anything. And we can just be still and be quiet and remember who God is. I think it would be a good practice to audit our time, to audit our worship, to audit our relationship with God and see how much time is spent talking. See how much time is spent just laying out our list of demands. See how much time is spent figuring out the kind of worship that makes us feel good and the kind of relationship with God that we want to have and see all of those places where we have ever so subtly replaced worshiping God with worshiping ourselves and then fix that and remind ourselves time and time again, even if we have to read this passage of Scripture every day of our lives, to remember that He is God and He is in heaven and we are not. We're here on earth and dependent on him for everything that we have, including our ability to worship. And if you need permission, it's right here in scripture. It's okay to let your words be few. Your silence can be just as worshipful, if not more, than your words. And so let's remember our God. And make sure that as we guard our steps, as we go toward worship, that even once we're there, that we remember that he is the God that we worship and focus our hearts directly on him. So we guard our steps. We let our words be few. And then we're told to keep our commitments. This verse, as I was reading through it, it was a little bit jarring for me to read. And it revealed a lot about how I think about life and how I think about grace and how I think about my relationship with God. Because in verse 4, he says, When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying for it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? And the reason this passage is jarring to me is I, I don't like to think about making vows to God. Part of that is just because of the context in which we live, right? You've, if you have grew up in the American South, religion is often used as a bit of a bargaining chip, more than a way to reach a relationship with God. And so that's something that people have used for clout, for power, for authority. You, for the longest time in the history of our country, you couldn't really be a politician without holding on to at least something that felt or looked like Christian religion. And so you'd have people monopolizing on that and trying to use that for personal gains. It was a way to just have these social connections and these social relationships. But also it was used in a way to bargain with God. 
And so we would start putting things on the table with God saying, okay, listen, God, if you do this, if you help me win this game, if you help me get this job, if you help me get into this school, if you help me make this certain amount, then I promise you I'll do this and this and this. Or we start to think that if I'm a faithful church member, if I give regularly, if I do these things, then there is going to be some sort of response from God. And we're looking at them as a transactional sort of thing. And honestly, that has left a bad taste in my mouth. And it's something that I've done over the course of my life, and so it makes me very nervous. Anytime I make a commitment to God, I start to think, am I using this as a bargaining chip? Am I using this as a way to elevate myself and to look better before other people? Or is this a sign that I'm kind of becoming a little bit legalistic about things? That I'm making these commitments to God, and that I feel like if I miss them or mess them up, then I've somehow damaged my relationship with God. And so I start to think, I'd rather just not make those at all and just live, live in grace, right? Grace, where nothing is required of me or I'm not supposed to do anything. But we can see, even in the New Testament, that vows and commitments before God are incredibly important. And one that I found in Acts chapter 18 is really strange. It's just such a very small passage, and there's almost no elaboration on it. But in Acts 18, verse 18 through 21, it says, After this, Paul stayed many days longer. And then took leave of the brothers and sisters and set sail for Syria. And with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Syncre he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a period longer, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. And so Paul had made this vow before God, and it was such an important thing to him that he had this physical reminder of it, that he cut his hair. And this feels like such an Old Testament covenantal sort of thing, and yet Paul, when he made this vow to God, gave himself a physical reminder of that vow so that he wouldn't break it. As we enter into the season of Lent, starting last week, Lent is a season where Christians all over the world are making a vow to God. But there's also a whole other side of that discussion when you'll hear people all the time say, oh, well, I gave up legalism for Lent. And we do have this fear that if I'm just doing something and I'm setting this time, that I'm going to fast for this time period, then that can start to feel like adding extra stuff to our worship, right? that I'm bringing in something new. And listen, Lent is not a requirement of Scripture. It's not. It is something that a long time ago, the church kind of agreed on. The early, early churches started to follow this practice. The Christian year, the church year, is really just something we do as a measure of discipleship. Even something like Christmas is not something required by Scripture. It's just something we do to remember the life and the ministry of Jesus. And so if you choose not to participate in Lent with fasting and all of those things— it's totally fine. But if you do, if you decide that over the season of Lent for these next 40 days minus Sundays that I'm going to fast from something, you need to fast from something. If the month of September rolls around and you decide I'm going to spend this next week fasting, I'm going to spend one week in September fasting from food completely or fasting from this kind of food, then during that week, you need to fast. 
If you make a commitment that you're going to serve in a particular area of ministry or be a part of a certain church or be a member of a church, then you need to uphold that commitment before God. If you decide that you need to spend your time ministering to and reaching maybe a person at work or a person in your life and God has laid that name on your heart, then you need to be faithful to be committed to that oath, to that vow, to that promise that you've made before God. This passage is one that Jesus references too where he says it's better that you should not make a vow than you should vow and not pay. And I think we look at that passage and think, okay, I'll take option two. Wait, option one? I don't know which direction that came in. I'll take the option where I don't have to do anything. I'm not going to make any promises because I don't want to disappoint God. I don't want to make any promises because I don't want to have any extra sort of commitments. But that's not the life that we're called to live. We should be a covenantal people, not just in our relationship with Jesus, not just in some sort of obscure way because we join a church and we become members of a church, but we should be the kind of people who are willing to say, God, I am going to do this. And when I say, God, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it. I'm going to keep my commitments. I'm going to fulfill my promises. I'm going to keep my vows. See, we have so much freedom and grace. And it's a beautiful thing. Because we don't have to work our way to Jesus. We don't have to do anything to keep our salvation. We are secure in the hands of the God who saved us. But sometimes we can look so much into that freedom and grace that we forget that we are called to be faithful in our obligations. And that we don't exchange our freedom for just this complete liberation from doing anything for the cause of Christ. But no, Paul says that you should take your freedom and give it back to Jesus. Take that freedom that Christ has earned for you and say, because of what you've done for me, now I'm going to live my life for you and be willing to put our freedom where our mouth is or our mouth where our freedom is or some sort of form of that where we say, God, I'm going to do these things And then be able to keep that. Some of those are commitments that are built in to the Christian life. Being a part of a body of Christ, a local body of Christ, gathering together at minimum these 52 weeks of the year as we remember the Lord's Day each and every Sunday. Being a people of discipleship and evangelism. Being people who are growing in our faith, these ongoing commitments are our responsibilities. But God is calling each and every one of us to different aspects of ministry, different aspects of service. He's put us in places for a reason, and we need to look and see what God is calling us to do, answer that calling, and then follow through with it in everything that we do. We have to be a people who keep our commitments because we're called to reflect a God who is faithful. A God who all of his promises are yes and amen. A God who has never failed to keep even one of his commitments to us. And so in the same way, we should be resolved to keep our commitments to him. And in the last verse, the teacher says, For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. And this idea of the fear of God is such a prevalent part in our wisdom literature, but not something that we talk about very often as modern Christians. But we're taught that the fear of God is the beginning of knowledge. And this knowledge of who God is that's based on the foundation of fearing him, of recognizing his great power and majesty and how awesome and wonderful he is, that is is the foundation of our worship. And if we don't have that, 
And we don't have that deep understanding of the awesome and wonderful and amazing power and majesty of God, then we are never going to be able to be the kind of faithful worshipers that we're called to be. We need to be more thoughtful in our worship. We need to be more reverent in our worship. We need to be more consistent in our worship. We need more affection in our worship. And honestly, we probably need less words in our worship as we approach the mighty God of the universe. None of these things are meant to keep us out of his presence. Because the beauty is, even when we are unfaithful, he is faithful because he can't act against himself. And so when we mess up, when we fall short, when we're not faithful, when we don't guard our steps, when we talk too much, his grace is sufficient for us. And his mercies are new every morning. And you can still come freely into the presence of God without guilt or shame or hindrance. But as we do come freely into God's presence through Christ in his spirit, we do need to guard our steps to be a people who are faithful and committed to Christ, keeping our oaths and our promises and our mission and our ministry and being sure that we take time to let our words be few. Because after all, our God is in heaven and we're on earth. He's God and we're not. We are the worshipers and he should be the object of our greatest affection, love, and praise. And so let's be a people that reflect that truth, not just on Sunday mornings, but each day of our lives. Let's pray.